It might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the- I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking the ghosts are just a metaphor. We're talking moth motifs. And we're talking the horror was for love. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, I heard you the first time. (laughs) She certainly did. I got such, I forgot that line existed in this movie. And me sitting on my couch watching by myself just busting out laughing. (laughs) Oh, I can see you guffawing at that for sure. And then also like, I'm just going to bean you in the head with a shovel. Oh, God, it's I think it's maybe possibly CGI or maybe it's a model. Nevertheless, it's it's funny looking. (laughs) It it looks a little odd. I will say the dad's death looks way better. But you know what? That's splitting hairs. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, we are discussing Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, uh, a movie that I think a lot, I'm surprised, but a lot more people are excited by us covering than I was expecting. Yeah, this was kind of like a a backbench catalog where we thought one day we'll get to this. It'll be lots of fun. And then all of a sudden people were like, oh, we're so glad that you're doing this. Like, this is a favorite film. Very, very excited. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> like uh, yeah right right back at you and you know this is a movie where uh i don't know i hadn't seen this since it came out i liked it when mm-hmm. it came out but i didn't really love it and so i was not hesitant to rewatch it but i was kind of like oh, how am i gonna feel about this but it was weird about 20 minutes into the movie i was like i'm really enjoying this so yeah <laughs> that's how my viewing went yeah i kind of felt the same thing i saw this in theaters i was a little underwhelmed but I remember really liking the costumes and the set design. And then rewatching this, it was like, okay, well, what is the movie actually doing as opposed yep. to what do you want it to do? And I still have some road bumps with the narrative, but overall, like, this is just so fucking gorgeous to look at. And these actors are really good. So it was just like, yeah, I'll settle in and watch, you know, an hour and 50 minutes of these beautiful people fucking each other over. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get to it. But I definitely pulled a Joe the first time I saw this movie. So um, oh, sure. mm-hmm. before before we get into that, <laughs> why don't we bring in our guest that's waiting in the wings? Because he is a Crimson Peak super fan. There we go. Everyone, he is a writer and columnist at such sites like Talk Film Society and Daily Grindhouse, writing book reviews for the latter. He is also the co-host of the upcoming Uwe Bull podcast, Lovin' Uwe. And you may also remember him from our previous episode on Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, or our mini-sode Saw boner-sode that we Mm -hmm. did in advance of Spiral from the Book of Saw. Please welcome Greg Mucci. Hey, what's up? I like how we started with the end of the movie. Just like the the movie. There <laughs> oh, we go. God. I was going to ask Joe. I was like, what did you think about the end media? Honestly, it, this is bad. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's so unnecessary. But you know what? The reason that they do this is because they don't think the beginning of movies or stories are exciting enough. So I kind of get it. But this is just so slight. I'm like, boys, what are we doing? What are we doing with this? Just start with the voiceover. You just need yeah. the voiceover. You don't need to see the end of the movie. <laughs> no, you're starting with a funeral. That's exciting enough. Come on. Yeah, but I mean, you have Great Expectations and Wuthering Heights, both movies that I think Del Toro loves that all start at the the end. And even like Mm -hmm. Great Expectations starts with like a book opening up, which is similar to this in a way. So I don't know. I appreciate it because those were two movies that I went and watched before I wrote my piece for Rue Morgue on this. And I was just like, you know, I had never seen the David Lean film. I never even read the book, but I was just like taken in by them. 
And yeah, I think they made me appreciate Del Toro's vision more. And yeah, it's a strange because he doesn't really note those as his influences. Same with like, you know, I mean, my Mario Bob is more like on his sleeve, but yeah, it's like the innocence, the haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would even like I because I, I saw I think Joe Hill mentioned this in his review of the film, but he compared it to Daphne Du Maurier's or Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. And honestly, that I can't believe I I never thought about that. And then when I read that, I was like, oh shit! Immediately, like yeah. immediately, yes, this really rings true for me. And I've never seen it. Oh, you should watch Rebe- the, the, the Hitchcock. It is really movie. good. Yeah. Mm. It pairs very well with this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Right. But it's, um, I, yeah, this book, it, this book, oh my God, this movie, <laughs> I, I was telling Joe earlier, it feels like a book adaptation. Yes. And watching it through that lens, I was like, oh, okay, I, I'm more on this movie's wavelength now than I was when I was, say, seeing the ghost and scare filled trailer for it in front of every single movie that I saw in the theater for three months leading up to its release and then getting mm. a gothic romance instead. Yes. Yeah, because I feel like that's one of the big things. I went into this expecting gothic horror, and the movie is very firmly giving us gothic romance. And I do think that there's a very important qualifier between the two of them. Like, in my mind, this movie is not setting out to scare us. And I think if you go back and look at some of the middling reviews, they say, oh, well, this movie's not really scary. It's a little too obvious. And it's like, the movie never says that it's out to scare you. It has ghosts, but those are not the scary kind of ghosts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's almost as if, like, you know, she's writing the book in the movie, and everyone's just mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, like, you should lean more in towards, like, the romance, because that sells, you know? Like, everyone feels yep. love, and the people who did the trailer were like, yeah, well, like, people respond more to horror. At least, like, yes, <laughs> within Del Toro's catalog. It's so funny, right, though, because the very beginning of this movie, when she's going to see Jonathan Hyde, king character actor of the 90s, he's like, he's like, um, oh, it's a ghost story. Well, no, it's a story that happens to have a ghost in it. And it's like, (laughs) oh, that's literally like lampshading this movie. (laughs) It's the movie telling on itself in the best way possible. It's just that nobody seemed to pick up on it the first time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was one of them. I I was. Yeah, me too. And I think the reaction to this movie, and we'll talk about when we get to the reception, that was relatively muted. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I think people were excited, like, when it was in the buildup. But once it came out, it was kind of like, it didn't flop, but it was kind of like, yeah. Well where, well, where were both of you when this came out? Like, did you see it opening night? <laughs> I saw this at the secret screening world premiere at Fantastic Fest, Ooh. where, so we don't know, I mean, we kind of knew it was going to be Crimson Peak, because those things are never really a full secret, but like, right. We're all sitting there, a full sold-out theater, and Tim Leake walks out and he's like, "We're so excited to show you this film. It's from an up-and-coming Mexican filmmaker. I hope you like you." you blah, blah, blah. And then just Guillermo de Toro just like walks out, <laughs> 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 and he introduces the film. <laughs> so I mean, it was a it was a really good environment. It was um this was my first year, my first festival ever. Um, I had only been writing for Bloody for about six months at the time. This was my first festival, and um yeah, I. I the environment was all there for me. It's just, I mean, it, I had literally seen this trailer in front of every single movie. It was imprinted in my brain. And it, I had these expectations, which, as everyone knows, is not fair when you're walking into any kind of movie. And I just never took the chance to rewatch it. And so I'm actually really glad that mm. I did this time because I did like it quite a bit more. Yeah, I saw it opening weekend. And it was primarily just because I was a fan of Guillermo's work on Pan's Labyrinth. So I had seen that when it had kind of initially come out and I was like, oh, this guy's really one to watch. (laughs) 
which is just like one to watch <laughs> not his first film you fucking dumb dumb but it was it was the one that broke big right it was the one where people said oh he's not just doing schlocky monster movies anymore yeah. now he's doing like serious oscar fare and this could be contending at the you know for a foreign film and you're just like oh my god we hate genre so much when it comes to credibility but uh, all that to say, I was really looking forward to some of his subsequent sort of like more mature efforts. Mm -hmm. And this cast had me enthralled. And then, yeah, I went in with the wrong expectations. And I was like, oh, well, the CGI didn't really work all that well for me. And it was kind of obvious. And it's like, <sighs> it's very much what you used to say about like 20 year old you, Trace, where you're just like, mm -hmm. I just wasn't in like the right headspace for a lot of these films. But you know what? I'm surprised we haven't gotten this. I think if you slap a black and white filter on this movie and Ooh. somehow make the CGI ghosts look not CGI, the vibe would be there for this movie for more people. I think the vibe is there. I mean, I think that, you know, <laughs> seven, eight years later, because I saw this Thursday. I, I saw this opening weekend well like the thursday i saw mm -hmm. it in imax and i Ooh. from i think people's like from my understanding and my love of like pan's labyrinth i went early mm -hmm. i expected it to be a sold out show and i think maybe 50 people like trickled in and i was yeah. like fuck is this movie gonna bomb like what's the deal and yeah i think when i first saw it i was expecting what the trailer offered which i think the trailer felt very much like um the del toro produced movie don't be afraid of the dark yeah yeah yes. yeah i was thinking the exact same thing so it was um don't wait for the dark was directed by crimson peaks co-writer uh, mm. uh uh matthew robbins okay i don't like that movie but it's been a while well you, that's really funny because they also co-wrote mimic together <laughs> and i know you don't like that movie <laughs> that, yeah this past october was a bad rewatch oh no <laughs> Because I saw that movie in theaters, and I think, like, you know, it was, what, 97, 98? 97. Yeah, 11, 12-year-old me was like, this movie fucking rules, it's got insects, has an insect wearing a trench coat, and, well, I don't know, like, little kids die. I thought the movie was kind of a bit brutal, and when I rewatched it, I mean, I hated the main actor, whose name I can't recall. It's uh, Mira Servino, right? No, he means the guy, though. There's a guy in it. She's uh, fine, Yeah. The guy is just like total mil like British milktoast, if I can remember. It's fine. So like a crumpet, I guess. We'll cover but, it one day. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You should do all, what, three of them? Three, yeah. I've definitely seen the third one, which is like a rear window. It's it's like mimic via rear window. Oh my, those words do not go no, together. No, I know. It's like, it's like, I think of this guy witnesses the cockroach in the apartment building across the street, like killing somebody. Like, it's very much that. But it's actually not as bad as it as you would think a straight to video mimic sequel. It's not great, mm. but like, it's fine. Right. <laughs> mm. I mean, I gave, I gave it one star, so. Oh my God, Greg, oh you're killing me. Um, <laughs> back to Crimson Peak. So, okay. So, Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins, they wrote this spec script after the release of Pan's Labyrinth in 06. And of course, this movie comes out in 2015. So there's a lot of stuff going on between there. And I was looking at this because Del Toro kind of, like, he did Pan's Labyrinth, and then he did Hellboy 2, The Golden Army in 2008. And then he was, like, not directing movies for five years. I was like, what the fuck was he doing? He was writing and, produ uh, writing and producing those Hobbit movies. And I was like, oh. Mm -hmm. I think he was also trying to get uh in the mouth of madness or in the mountains of madness off the ground and of course nobody ever wants to make that movie so 
Yeah, well, that, that so yeah, that's the thing. So yeah, so he did Hellboy, you know, uh, goes on the hiatus for um for the Hobbits. He does Pacific Rim in 2013 and comes back with this. But he submitted the script. Um, he sold it quietly to Donna Langley at Universal Studios, and he planned to direct the film. Um, but yeah, you know, he went on this hiatus for all this shit. Mm-hmm. And then originally he was going to find another director to just do this film for him, but he couldn't find someone that he deemed suitable enough. So he had a good working relationship with legendary entertainments, Thomas Tull and John Jeshney, uh, who had asked what he wanted to do next. So he was like, instead of just saying, hey, I want to do Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, <laughs> he, uh, he sent them his screenplays for that, for a Western adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo and for Crimson Peak. And they were like, well, the last of these, Crimson Pink, the original story, um, that's the best project for us. It's just the right size, which I actually find pretty fascinating that they went for an original property over an IP. I wonder if it's because they looked at what the budget implications would be for the first one and they were like, no. And then they looked at the possible box office of the second one, which is a Western. And they're like, no. So we'll go with the third one. Interesting. When I hear what I was thinking, like, Western is and it takes place in the States as opposed to like Western European. Oh, no. But that that oh, yeah, that oh, God. Also, I like the Jim Caviezel one. That one's good. It's good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Universal allowed Del Toro to move the project to Legendary with the caveat that they would put up money for a stake in the film. And so when pitching it, and I guess not pitching it, but just describing it, uh, Del Toro called the film a ghost story and a gothic romance. Very set oriented, classical, but at the same time, modern take on the ghost story. Uh, he said it would allow him to play within the genre's conventions while subverting other rules. And that's kind of the part where I'm really interest, interested to talk about because mm-hmm. I do think it's very classical. I do think it plays within the rules. I don't, I don't see a ton of subversion here, which isn't a problem. I just don't see it. Uh, He stated, I think that people are getting used to horror subjects done as found footage or B-value budget. So he wanted this film to feel like a throwback. Right. He also wanted to honor the grand dames of the haunted house genre. So like Robert Weiss is the haunting and Jack Clayton's the innocence, as Greg already mentioned. He wanted to make a large scale horror film in the tradition of those he grew up watching, like The Omen, like The Exorcist and The Shining. And The Shining was the big one for him because... He was like, that's the Mount Everest of haunted house movies and like the high production values, incredible effects and the the Kubrick's control over these enormous sets. That's what he wanted to do with this. So that's why we get this completely like actual scale of this Crimson Peak like mansion. Yeah, I was uh, watching some of the behind the scenes featurettes on this arrow blue that I got and they fully built this whole fucking house. It is wild. I haven't seen the set design Mm. on a scale like this in quite some time. Like usually, you know, they'll build a couple of rooms and then they'll have to like walk from this set to the other set and then we'll continue filming. And here it's like when Edith is getting chased down the stairs by Lucille, they literally built the house in part so that they could do that as a single take. And you're just like, that is epic scope. Yeah. I mean, when I remember when I first saw this, I was like, oh, this house is so like grand and decadent. Mm -hmm. Like I love it and I want to live there. But now watching it, in winter without a hole in my ceiling i was like you know something fuck this place i mean it's beautiful but like it is i think it really shows the sharp sort of uh predicament you know how they're like really Mm -hmm. looking for money in some ways and like i don't know it's it's a beautiful place but i guess and this sounds very strange but it's poor i guess (laughs) (laughs) i was like whoa where is he gonna break out it's a poor person's mansion (laughs) (laughs) 
for sure. <laughs> no, it's like it shows like the sumptuous nature of the time. But you're not wrong, Greg. I mean, the the reality is, is the people in the class that they're operating in would have looked at this and been like, you have a fucking hole in your roof. You have snow coming down. You know, you've got this like red clay blood seeping from all the walls. But even beyond that, this place is in a huge state of disrepair. Like it's unacceptably poor. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, dilapidated. We'll say dilapidated. Uh, that's a good word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's some uh, high school literature uh, uh, knowledge right there. Probably got it from my great expectations, which unfortunately is a book that I absolutely loathe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so attached to this film before before the cast we had in place was Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone. So they were going to be Thomas and Edith, respectively. They both dropped out, uh, the latter because of scheduling conflicts, but the former for undisclosed reasons. I don't. I don't know. Like Cumberbatch released had to release a statement basically saying that the, the split from the film was amicable, which makes me think that either the media was like making up this whole like, oh, like Cumberbatch is in a feud with Del Toro type things or whatever. I have no idea. That's interesting because I yeah, saw he was small. Yeah, that yeah. I can't remember when the first Hobbit came out, but obviously, like his relationship with Del Toro is okay, or else he probably wouldn't have been smog. Well, and Del Toro is just producing these films, mm. not even directing those Hobbit films. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Nevertheless, um, principal photography began in Toronto at, at Pinewood Studios uh, on February 10th and ended on Ooh. May 16th, 2014. Fun fact. So again, that's they end in May of 2014. The movie comes out October of 2015. I think they had completely like finished the film by December of 2014. But Universal was like, well, do we want this to be a Halloween release? So they just waited. They held on to it until October, which unfortunately might not have been the best idea. No, I think if we're being realistic, this would have been a better Valentine's Day release. Mm -hmm. Do you think it would have played well in the summer? It's tricky. Uh... It's got that like big scope to it, right? Like it feels opulent and I could see them trying to sell this as a bit of a tentpole. But the problem is, is like, even if you look at the cast, none of these people are bankable stars. I mean, Hiddleston was, you know, Thor or Loki in Thor. So people have known of him. Yeah. Well, for Vasi Vasikovska, I I forgot. Shashika broke out on the HBO show in treatment. That was what got her all of her accolades originally. And then she did that horrible Alice in Wonderland movie. And honestly, that's oh, the boy. first thing that I saw her in, and I hated her. I was like, you are the blandest lead character I have ever seen in a movie in a very long time. Mm, yep. And it wasn't until the children the kids are all right that I was like, oh good. You can do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She definitely strikes me as one of those actresses where she will perform up to the standards of whatever production she's in. So like if she is in a not great Tim Burton film, she's not great. But if she's in something that requires her to be legitimately talented, she's like, Oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll knock it out of the park for you. Well, you know what, though? Anne Hathaway was in a very boring Tim Burton movie called Alice in Wonderland, and she is amazing in that movie. Is she a villain and or a witch? She is a witch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, anyway, so as I said earlier, it had its world premiere at Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas on September 25th, 2015. That's where I was. Um, it was then released theatrically about a, uh, less than a month later on October 16th, 2015, where it was facing off against the other new releases, uh, Goosebumps 
and Bridge of Spies and, a, and some football movie called Woodlawn that I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> it opened in the number four spot with $13.1 million, which is pretty, well, not well below, but it's below the 15 mm-hmm. to $20 million expectations that were had for it for opening weekend. It would go on to gross $31.1 million domestically and $43.6 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $74.7 million against a production budget of $55 million. And that's what I'm saying, like, domestically it is a flop, but, like, at least the international made up for it. But this was still, I would Mm. wager, a pretty big disappointment for Universal Studios. Uh, I mean, I think the expectations were massive, given Pan's Labyrinth's sort of, like, you know, acclaim. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, that movie, I I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but I can guarantee you it made at least double what this made. Yeah. I I think it legged it out, too, right? Because it actually did get awards recognition, so mm. it, it sort of played for a longer period of time, whereas... I feel like I remember this kind of coming out, not really doing much and then quietly disappearing. And people just, you know, ever since have said, oh, well, it just didn't do very well. So I guess it's bad movie. Well, but you want to talk directors failing upward because, of course, you know, Del Toro would eventually go and do The Shape of Water, which also got award detention. But then Mm -hmm. what happened last year? Nightmare Alley, I think, is possibly the biggest flop of his career. Yeah. Financially speaking. Yeah, and, and I and I love that movie. I, I gave that five stars. But yeah, it was kind of crazy that that wasn't oh, wow. even up for awards recognition. It was in the talks, but mm-hmm. because it flopped so hard, I can guarantee you it just went out as soon as that happened. Yeah, yeah, I think they looked at it and said, well, it's not worth spending our money on it. But it's interesting. Like Trace and I covered that one for Patreon. And I feel like Trace, that's a film where we also went in maybe with the wrong expectations because greg we had just watched the original film Mm. and they're kind of similar but also just a little bit different no they're pretty they're pretty similar it's del toro just remakes the first movie and adds 40 minutes to it (laughs) so i'm i'm curious to know if we were ungenerous towards it um i mean you know i would obviously say watch it again because i think every del toro movie sort of deserves Mm-hmm. I don't know, a second viewing, which is why I've been like really itching to rewatch Shape of Water because I like hated it. Oh, see, I love Shape of Water. Yeah, I like I, I like Shape of Water a lot. I mean, I, I, the thing with Del Toro is I actually I haven't seen um, Devil's Backbone. And I haven't seen Kronos, although I have those criterions like sitting on my shelf just waiting for me to watch. But I find with a lot of his more recent films, I I do like Shape of Water a lot. That's probably the, my favorite out of his like recent batch of films. Mm-hmm. But I. I honestly like the always think they're very beautiful, but never really truly connect with a lot of the characters in his films. But I I know that I'm in the minority with that, which is why I think I like stuff like Mimic, where I'm like, yeah, we're just doing a schlocky cockroach movie in the sewers. Like, yay. <laughs> characters are unimportant. I don't need to care about these people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I care about the people or the characters of Crimson Peak. Uh, I just think that's... I do now. Yeah, I just think it has one thing that it fails at, and we could get into that later. But yeah, I mean, right. even Shape of Water, I think I cared about them. I just really hated the like the sentimentality of it was like getting, you know, a bagel and cream cheese from Dunkin' Donuts. You're like, I don't need this much cream cheese. And for me, it was just like too much <laughs> of this thing. See, that was the that was his, the the film of his the, the most recent of his films that I did connect with the characters enough. But mm-hmm. I, there's also a lot of queer undertones in that movie that I really like mm-hmm. resonated with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I 
I don't know. I find Sally Hawkins to me is like a very yeah. rootable actress. Like when I see her, I always think of underdogs and yeah, I don't know. I think it was maybe the right movie for me at the right time. Like it was the film I was looking for yeah. and it delivered. Whereas I think a lot of his other films like you trace, it's been a little bit more of a struggle to be like, I don't know. I go in wanting to have that. And then I think I try to force an emotional connection yeah. to it as opposed to just saying, okay, how do I feel about this film? Yeah, very much so. But going back to the box office for this, I mean, like, one issue, and I hate even saying this, this is an R-rated film. And much mm -hmm. like Nightmare Alley, it's not even a hard R. It's just there are two or three moments where mm -hmm. you're like, ooh, if you cut that, you would have a PG-13 rating. Right. And unfortunately, the market at the time when this movie came out was crowded with PG-13 cinema. Ah. And so, I mean, also, because this is number four, I know number one was Goosebumps, uh, but like The Martian was still playing really well at theaters at the time. So like, hmm. they're just, it was too crowded. It wasn't the right time. So unfortunately, Universal thinking, ooh, October horror movie didn't pay off. Yeah. Weirdly enough, though, women represented 60% of the film's audience with 55% of the audience being 25 or older. So yeah, none of the kids went to go see this movie. Okay, you say weirdly, this is a fucking love story. Of course, the majority audience was women. But it wasn't marketed as one. It wasn't marketed as a love story. Right. Like that's what I, You're right. I agree with you. But the way it was sold was very much to the horror crowd. Yeah, but what's the what's the demographic for like period pieces? You know, is it more women? Is it more of that age group? Because I think that's very obvious from the I would assume I mean, obviously. so. Yeah. 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 Sorry. And not to imply too that the horror crowd doesn't include women. I know there are like a good split of women in the horror genre, but like when it's marketing, they're, they're clearly marketing towards teenage boys, you know? Uh, Edith, can you pass Trace your shovel so that he can dig himself a little deeper? <laughs> Best weapon. I love it. Um, as for reception, over on Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at a 73% with an average score of, oh, this is great, an average score of 6.6 .6 out of 10. It has on Metacritic a 66 out of 100, and Letterboxd users have awarded it a 6.6 .6 out of 10. So we are looking at a 66 all the way through all these critical aggregate sites. Wow, it's like my grades when I was in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, again, we're looking, that's like a 3 to a 3.5 out of 5. That's what we're looking at. That's the average. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. And yeah, I mean, like I, I, the reviews are whatever, like we'll talk because I think we, we have enough to say. But yeah, after uh, fucking Stephen King, um, after attending an early screening, horror writer Stephen King called the film gorgeous and just fucking terrifying, which what? stop it probably isn't good <laughs> for people walking into this movie. <laughs> What, he couldn't pull out the old standby? Scariest movie ever? Well, but then his son, Joe Hill, so he's like, Crimson Peak is Del Toro's blood-soaked Age of Innocence, a gloriously sick waltz through Daphne du Maurier territory. And while I think that may still be a better. little extreme, it's a much more accurate description of this movie. For sure, for sure. Um, I mean, I think Stephen King, yeah. you know, a lot of times when you see, especially up-and-coming horror writers, you'll see, like, a quote from Stephen King that's like, you know, the scariest mm -hmm. mind of horror or like i don't know he, he works in hyperboles so i think he's had to take mm -hmm. whatever he yes. says is a great assault but you know like he with terrifier too he was like it's grossing you out the old school way and i was like there you go there's a normal quote yeah <laughs> that, that's accurate mm. <laughs> sometimes it feels like he's desperate to get those poll quotes on like every single piece of horror media it's like no uncle steve you don't need to you're fine 
I think the problem is for me with that, and we can move on after this, like, people know that now. Like, I think whenever <laughs> Stephen King does, does that kind of a quote for a movie, everyone rolls their eyes now. Uh, right. I mean, it kind of like, when there's, like, you know, a scene of, like, an author signing posters over and over again, I just feel like that's Stephen King, but with, like, pull quotes, where he's just like, fuck it, gotta say this, mm-hmm. next one, <laughs> next one. It just, I don't know, it seems like someone just hands him a bunch of stuff. Tabitha, like, what did we think of this one? Did we like this one? The scariest? Yeah, no, yes, scariest okay, scariest ever. movie. <laughs> oh my god. That was good. <laughs> Tabitha, was there a dog in this one? Can I say Cujo? Yeah. <laughs> Scarier than Cujo. <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> Slap it on the poster, which they will. Which they will. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Let's talk about the plot because we do have a two hour movie to go through. This is true. Yes. Okay. So we begin with red tinged credits. Always love a unique credit sequence. And then we have the sound of a heartbeat and it transitions into Edith Cushing, who is played by Mia Vasakaska. And uh, folks, in case you didn't know, the character name is a reference to novelist Edith Wharton, who, of course, also wrote gothic romances. Well, and I will say, though, that we immediately open you up with this, like, you know, it's it's the end of the movie, as we already said, but it's like it's mm-hmm. like the Silent Hill fog. Yes. And I was very pleased to re- to find out that the cinematographer for this movie, Dan Laustsen, is also the cinematographer on the original Silent Hill film from 2006. <laughs> mm. Tabitha, what did we think of Silent Hill? Was it foggy enough? Was it like the mist? <laughs> Foggiest movie today. <laughs> Slap it on the poster. Foggiest movie. <laughs> when you think about it, the Fog remake was 05, Silent Hill was 06, and then mm. The Mist was 07. <laughs> Good years for Fog. Okay, so Edith is standing bloodied in the snow and fog and mist and all this other stuff. And we're getting her voiceover, and then we flash back to her mother's funeral. This is set in 1887 when she was 10. And we learned that her mother died of cholera. So it was a closed casket because, of course, she would have been completely black. And then that is how she appears that night when she comes to her as a smoky black apparition. Trace, I'm just going to make the quick complaint that once again, we have all of these ghosts being played by male identifying actors. And I'm annoyed by it. So this is Doug Jones. I am less bothered by the fact that because you can't even tell because they're all CGI. So they were clearly doing this just for Javier Botet and um, Doug Jones's like physicality. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there's not a woman that also has the same physicality, but like we've all seen malignant folks. Del Toro has a relationship with these actors and it's it, yes. it, 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 I know this is technically the monstrous feminine because it's it's a ghostly like specter of a woman, mm-hmm. but they're so CGI, which I I don't think the CGI looks good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really affect my uh, my opinion of the film that much, if only because I do like the way the 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 the, the red ghosts look um, as we get further mm-hmm. in the film. It's fine, um, but it, yeah, it is kind of a weird thing where I'm like, but Del Toro, why are you using practical effects for these ghosts? <laughs> yeah, again, if you look at the featurettes on the Blu-rays, they actually show them in the makeup, and so it's actually CGI augmented but the CGI augmentation doesn't make it look good. Like they should have just left it alone because the makeup and the costuming looks great just when they're, you know, untouched up. 
Yeah, I think I, th- I think they they work best when they're grounded. I think like when you see the apparition or the ghost sort of floating there, uh, it sort of points the finger at what it's sort of doing or what it is. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you're making a film that's harkening back to like you know a period, and you're sort of like you know telling a right. classic story. So in my opinion, and I guess mm-hmm. it doesn't matter really, but you should use classic effects. But yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean if you're gonna say it's a throwback make it a throwback Mm. right unless this is the subversion like we're making a classic with modern contemporary fx honestly i'm wondering if the subversion is just that it's incest because they couldn't do that back in the 40s (laughs) (laughs) we could only imply it (laughs) i mean i I mean i do do think edith is subverting it and where she goes because if you watch you know or read a bunch of other sort of gothic novels or films it's always you know like a a white stallion kind of comes in at the end and saves her, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll, we'll get there, mm-hmm. but I do think that it subverts it, but it's sort of like slumber party massacre where you're like, you are subverting the male gaze, but you're also catering to it. Like there's things that you can't really escape ultimately. Um, I guess, mm. no, I, I guess, yeah, I guess in the, in the case of Edith, like when I, when I think of the innocence, when I think of the haunting, I love those lead actresses, but they're very, um, I don't want to they're say a little weak. passive. Yeah, they're a little passive. Whereas I do appreciate, like, I appreciated Edith's, like, strength in this movie more in a rewatch. Mm. Yes. And, Greg, you're absolutely right that, you know, like, when we get the Alan character who's played by Charlie Hunnam, he's he's not the Hunnam. White Knight. It's just Hunnam. It's just Hunnam. 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 It's like an Asian Hunnam. <laughs> Yes. You know what? He's tasty but bland. Charlie um, Hunnam. <laughs> Charlie Hunnam. He is not that white knight. You know, he tries to come in. He does not save the day. So I think that is the other kind of subversion that the film is doing. It's like, okay, we're going to give you not quite a final girl, but. Man, Hunnam is my weak link in this film. And not even because of his acting. His role feels so superfluous to the plot. Like every time we cut back, I'm like, oh, right. He's in this movie. I, Mm -hmm. I feel like what should have happened was all of his scenes of investigating should have been condensed to the first hour of the film and then he just shows up at the end which would have made more sense but the way we have the film he like you know he, he's like i'm gonna go and it's like we get a scene and then the next scene he's in london and i was like or he's mm-hmm. in england and i was like didn't you have to like boat there <laughs> yeah i mean like the passage of time in this is sort of it's very questionable yeah yeah but it also feels sort of like classic storytelling where you know all of a sudden like you turn a page and you're three months down the line there's many mm-hmm. times that i've seen this and never gotten like a full grasp of how long she's in allerdale or crimson peak mm, yeah but i guess sort of toying with that it asks you to wonder how long has she been like getting poisoned for which in case anyone hasn't seen the movie right. yeah i guess i i just think that it would have made more sense to be like okay like let's squish more of his scenes together so he feels more like an actual part of the plot Mm. as opposed to giving us like one minute bits of him every like 20 minutes and then he just shows up at the end of the day i'm like no no no. let 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 us forget that he's in this movie and then have him show up to like save her i think that would have made more sense to me but again minor nitpick Mm. okay so uh we're we're still all the way back in this like flashback to her mom's death and (laughs) All this to say, the black apparition says, hey, be careful about Crimson Peak. And this 10 year old's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So let's flash <laughs> forward. 
So let's flash forward 14 years. Edith is now living in Buffalo with her father. She is an aspiring author. And uh, yeah, she's got this childhood friend, Dr. Alan McMichael, played by Charlie Hunnam. God, folks, can you please try to get it right? And uh, she's also not popular with his mother, who is played by Leslie Hope. Fantastic okay. Canadian actress. We never like get a come up. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to come up into this woman, but I needed like some kind of like the last we see of her is the everyone has their place. I'll make mm-hmm. sure you find yours. I'm like, no, give me something else. I love this. <laughs> well, her place, I guess, is Crimson Peak. But yeah, uh, the only thing the only <laughs> thing I'd seen her True. in is uh, 24. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's what she gets really famous for. Um, it's so funny to see. Like Canadian actors are almost like character actors. They pop up in a bunch of things, but then everybody always knows them for like the one thing that they kind of get famous for, which is always an international piece. So it's like, oh, yeah, Leslie Hope, you know, she's in a bunch of things. People know her as, you know, that bitch from 24. That bitch. (laughs) Well, I'm letting Canadians. Well, because she's Jack Bauer's wife, so she's very shrill. Um, But don't they feel that way about his daughter? Oh, yeah. But that's mostly because she got chased by a cougar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But was that like a season long thing? Is that what the big deal was? I, I, I've i never seen that show, but I do know about that fucking cougar. It was like two episodes, but it's kind of ridiculous <gasps> when it's like cut back to Alicia Cuthbert. She's on a hill. <laughs> I don't know Leslie Hope, so I had to look her up to be like, what do I know her from? Um, mm-hmm. She is in Slasher season two. She gets a good moment in Slasher season two. Because <laughs> Slasher's Canadian. Just so yeah, people it's know it's a literal <laughs> cougar that is chasing her. Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia Cuthbert fighting a cougar like an old lady. (laughs) I'd fucking watch it. Okay, I want that queer remake so badly. You know what? That's Greta 2, the direct-to-video release. Greta 2, the cougar. (laughs) The cougar. (laughs) Tabitha, did I like the cougar movie with Alicia Cuthbert? (laughs) She puts her in a crate. Or out of toilet paper. That's captivity. I mean, it's also Greta. <laughs> Slap that on the poster. Out of toilet paper. <laughs> Cut me up a t-shirt. Captivity out of toilet paper? <laughs> oh my god, we are delicious. Okay. Okay, <clears throat> okay yeah, so... Ms. McMichael does not like her because, of course, she thinks that Edith is trying to get with her son and she thinks that he can do better, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So, yeah, she goes to meet a publisher, Ogilvy, as you said, Trace, played by Jonathan Hyde. One scene only. Come on, man. I was so excited. I have not seen this man do much, but actually, I guess the Del Toro connection worked for him because he. the reason he's in this is because he was in The Strain for like two seasons. Oh, my God. The Strain. It's, no. I know. It's so bad. Also filmed in Toronto. <laughs> Children of the 90s. Again, Van Pelt and Jumanji, Westridge and Anaconda, the, the mm-hmm. dude that says this ship can't seek in Titanic. Like, it is so... Everything in this the This man was my 90s. <laughs> and he's so fucking good. I mean, I I appreciate that he shows up here. You're like, oh my god, Jonathan, okay, you're gone. That's fine. But yep. it reminds me of all of the things that I love him in. Yeah, 100%. I wish he did more stuff nowadays. But yeah, I just like, mm-hmm. I, honestly, I couldn't tell you a single thing he's been in besides this and The Strain since the 90s (laughs) boy yes so we we do get this kind of placeholder where he says okay i like your manuscript but also you're a woman and it doesn't have enough of a love story in it so 
She goes to her dad, Carter Cushing, who is played by Jim Beaver. Yes, everyone. Dad from Supernatural. Moving on. Oh, that's so funny because apparently his claim to fame is Deadwood. So, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Respectability, Deadwood. And then like everyone else <laughs> level genre is supernatural i actually really like him in this movie i find him to oh, be a he's very always good character yeah yeah anyway he gives her Chekhov's pen but she's like hey how about this modern appliance the typewriter i believe you have one in your office can i go there please so that i will be mistaken for a secretary by thomas sharp who is played by tom hiddleston well but i i do love that she's immediately like aware of gender roles which is like well my mm-hmm. handwriting's too feminine so i need to type this shit sorry daddy but the dad is yeah. like i almost hate that he gets killed i know he has to like to move the story mm-hmm. along but like i would have watched a movie between edith and her dad <laughs> like just like oh, hanging sure. out and talking oh yeah i mean i think that jim beaver uh because he's also the sheriff in joyride there's also like a weird comfort to him <sighs> yeah yes and yeah i mean i don't know I say this knowing very well that there's a ton of period piece shows that just get canceled. Kind of like um, I went on HBO, The Nevers. That got canceled after, what, six episodes? Uh-huh. But that's probably the Joss Whedon effect, too. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched every episode and I kind of hated it. But um, <laughs> I would also watch uh, just, you know, them existing in this, you know, what is it, 1908? I yes. think so. Yeah, but th- that's kind of the thing, though. So I, I, this movie is actually like it's a full two hours and the acts are all a full 40 minutes. So it's very mm. evenly split. So, again, if you're walking in this movie expecting a ghost story and a ghost haunting movie, you get that for the first scene. But then you have 40 minutes of mm-hmm. this, which I was again, again, a bit puzzled by on a first viewing. But I was very like, I was pulled into all this drama on this rewatch. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This stuff is all really good. I enjoy the society stuff a Mm -hmm. lot to the point where I think not only are we getting these fun character actors, but, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote palace intrigue in the way that Edith is having to negotiate high society. And I think it clues us in that she's not like a dumb damsel that you might expect. Like she is naive. She is young, but also she's going to be able to hold her own when she realizes, oh, hey, I'm being poisoned by these incest siblings. (laughs) These incest (laughs) siblings. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Thomas comes in and yes, he's basically in America seeking funding for this revolutionary machine that he has invented, which he hopes will save the family fortune because it excavates clay very well. Unfortunately, because he has soft hands, he doesn't endear himself to Mr. Cushing, who reads him to filth immediately. Great. So good. So, so good. Also, is clay like a really vital mineral? Uh, What do we use clay for? Yeah, bricks. So back in the day, it would have been very important for any buildings. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I I just find it very funny because, like, yeah, this house is sinking into a clay (laughs) mine. And they're like, you don't have the money to build this machine. Sorry, we're just going to let all that clay sit there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you, yeah, you you still have to get it up and you have to mix it with things. So like it's in the ground. You need to be able to dig it up. And that's what they can't do. I mean, the most relatable thing about Thomas Sharp, and I really don't think that there's much outside of potentially falling in love, is that he's got this like dilapidated home and he'd rather just spend it on this machine mm-hmm. that excavates clay. And I'm like, you know something? Yeah, I fucking neglect responsibilities and I just buy Blu-rays. Fuck it. I get it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i 
I don't want to say I don't find him relatable because honestly, I, I feel like he has been. Ooh, do I want to say groomed by his sister? A little bit, yeah. Like I, I, I feel like he's a victim in all this. Like he, I mean, I know when when Lucy when Lucille killed their mother, she was fourteen, he was twelve, and so there's like an age gap there. It's not a big age gap, but it's enough to where I still kind of consider him a child, whereas yes. I don't consider her a child. It's like that like that statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that they are both groomed. Well, by I think they're mom. also styled in that way. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say he was groomed by his sister, but yes, that also applies mm. too. Uh, okay, so Edith observes that he is hard-pressed for money because he seems to be wearing a 10-year-old suit. So that's another kind of character trait that she is a writer, so she's constantly observing people taking note of important details to tell the story. Even though she doesn't really seem to have, like, like they have that bit of a meet-cute, but it doesn't really go much further because obviously her dad is like, get out of here, you're a charlatan. Yeah. Uh, she goes home and it's like very telling that she just kind of plops onto her bed and she starts reading up about his uh, UK manor, which is, of course, named Allerdale Hall. And I'm just like, oh, that's the equivalent of a young teenage girl going up to her room and like looking at pictures of a boy in like some kind of teen bop magazine, right? She's like, oh, I'm enthralled by this man. Which I know it's par for the course with this genre of film literature whatever the fuck mm-hmm. but we're running into the what lies beneath scenario where it's like ghost why oh. didn't you say beware of allerdale hall mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> instead of crimson peak <laughs> I get her there it's so true though right like if the ghost would just learn how to fucking spell it out don't do your generic haunting don't spell things out in the mirror don't rattle a fucking doorknob <laughs> you know what what do i know <laughs> I know a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, it's like the I know you did last summer effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just so funny when she finally like learns what the name of the place is and she's like, oh my goodness, Crimson Peak. Oh no. And you're just like <sighs> It's it's like an hour and ten minutes into the movie, and you're like, bitch, way ahead of you. <laughs> I thought you were smart. <laughs> she... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, she gets a second ghostly warning, and then uh, Thomas comes in out of the rain, and he has basically been waiting for her father to leave so he could come in and be like, Hey, I can't negotiate fine society. Will you please come to this party with me? So she ends up agreeing because, of course, she's secretly falling in love with him. And this is our introduction to Lucille. Of course, we see her from behind as she's playing the piano. We have to hear how good she is at playing. We have to see how rapt the audience is. Like, she's totally got the room enraptured. And then, oops, Thomas and Edith walk in and they steal her thunder. And she's not very happy about it. So this is still Jessica Chastain. I mean, it's she's not like an unknown by this point, right? Like, she's done Zero Dark Thirty. But like, um, I forgot it was the help that like really shot her off. Where it was like, oh, people were like, oh, that that's the role. That, like, that's the, the star in this movie. Mm-hmm. she was gonna play edith and then yeah. she told del toro i want to play lucille <laughs> well yeah because it was like what mama and then also the same year she did the martian she did just stellar what year was it just stellar? yeah mm, year before i mean she'd been she'd been up and coming for a while but i yeah like it was a series of sort of like when is this woman going to break out well this wasn't a bad october for her than if she was in the martian because the martian beat this movie 
to the oh, ground. Yeah, a pulp. Yes. Oh, she was a, she, she Not in take space. shelter. <laughs> it's a great movie. Oh yeah. That's yeah. the Michael Shannon one, right? Uh mm-hmm. yeah, the uh, Jeff Nichols. I still haven't seen it. Oh, it's good. Yeah. So I I did just want to give a quick shout out to costume designer Kate Hawley. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, I think the set design in this movie is outstanding. But then the second notable item is the costumes. And of course, people have written extensively about her work in other films. She did Pacific Rim, Edge of Tomorrow, The Hobbit Trilogy, Suicide Squad. But for this movie specifically, she had a color scheme for each character, which to me is... In some ways, I think very accessible. It also sometimes feels a little bit like film school 101. Like you can really just show this movie to people and say, hey, keep an eye on the colors. They'll tell you things that you need to know about who the characters are. So, you know, Edith is always dressed in white and gold because she's the heroine. She is a ray of light. We've got Thomas is always in faded dark colors, suggesting that he is poor but also that he is like slightly groomed towards the dark side we have lucille who is always in these very impeccably well designed but very sharp vivid tight clothing uh, suggesting she's very uptight restrictive and then we have alan in this kind of reassuring tobacco brown colors (laughs) yeah bland boring uh well because she also she also did the costumes for mortal engines which i think is Another beautiful movie that also yes, yes. really tanked. Mm-hmm. Steampunk. Did produce that, didn't he? Yeah, and that's another Peter Jackson combination one. Oh, God. Don't get mad at me, but sometimes I get like Peter Jackson properties and Del Toro properties <laughs> mixed. I'm sorry, the producing qualities. It's because they work together a lot. So they, they both mm. produced that. Neither one of okay. them directed it. Yeah, mm. well, maybe that was the mistake. Um, no, I'm not a big fan of yellow as a as like a clothing item. Um, I want to bathe in Edith's yellow gown. Oh, it's <laughs> like, so gorgeous. And well, when we get to it later, but whatever Edith's thing is when she's running down that staircase in that one one shot, like I want all of that <laughs> on my body. It's like a nightgown. Yeah, I mean, like she, they definitely dress her like a, butter, yeah, like, like a butterfly, so you know, as opposed to the moth that is. Yes. Yeah. And that shot was in every trailer, too. And that's the, like, the one image that sticks out of my mind is Lucille running down that staircase with the wind like blowing her her, her fabric up. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's like so the best part of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's also, I think, very obvious why Edith is not the right role for Jessica Chastain. And Lucille was a very good fit, not only because I think Jessica Chastain can do severe, but she's the fun character in this movie right well but i i think again i mean if you're looking at chastain's previous roles i mean I'm like granted, i i have not seen zero dark 30 so maybe she's a badass bitch in that trying to get osama bin laden i don't really know <laughs> oh she's hardcore yeah okay there you go because yeah, to me i mean like, I, the help she she is you know, bryce dallas howard is the cunt in that movie and then you have jessica chastain is like the oh my god uh. so she she fits the edith role there that's that's all mm. so seeing her in this is my first like oh shit she's evil <laughs> loved it yeah because yeah, because before this she was you know lawless and tree of life i feel like those maybe not mm. lawless but tree mm-hmm. of life she's just like yeah. you know the the maternal sort of the comfort you know so i think yeah. like taking this role it's the same as like molly's game where she's or zero dark 30 where she's like okay i think it's gonna subvert people's expectations Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think good that's one of the reasons why people have really responded to her because she's really good at a diverse bunch of roles. Like it's hard to kind of pigeonhole her and say, oh, she's that 
that type of actress. Like she doesn't yeah. just do one type of genre. Which is which is why I mean, look, I know we all have like mixed thoughts on it chapter two, but that's why I really liked her accepting that role. I was like, I mean, of mm-hmm. course, it was like a money, guaranteed money maker, but I was like, you oh, yeah. have to do this clown horror movie. <laughs> so good for you, Oscar winner. <laughs> Tabitha, did we like the it adaptations? <laughs> We're still out of toilet paper. I had to be like, wait, did she win an Oscar? But she won an Oscar last year. She got the Oscar for Tammy Faye. So I'm fine. Oh, right. Yes. Wow. Okay. That face and makeup. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay so daddy hires mr holly who is played by character actor Bern gorman uh everyone if you listen to our episode on watcher he's the watcher mm-hmm. <laughs> love this man he's so creepy looking yeah i mean it it's interesting here because he's not playing a baddie he's just no. a little bit shady because he's a private investigator yeah of the 1800s where you're like of the 1900s where you're like what do you have to do to do that? <laughs> it means you literally have to like travel places to go and look up things. <laughs> I have to use books. <laughs> mm-hmm. Books. I mean, that's why we we joke that the bitch should have known about Crimson Peak, but it's like, well, unless somebody wrote it down, how was she to know? The ghosts just know the gossip of what the people call Allerdale, but she she didn't she refrained to read the big sign gate <laughs> that greets you when you're in Allerdale. <laughs> Uh, plus, she was like, you know, more of a, a Mary Shelley fan. So maybe she was like, there's no windmill. We're good to go. I do like that. That was a really good comeback. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the reality is, is that her reference of Jane Austen is appropriate because, of course, Jane Austen did publish under a male pseudonym because it was the only way she could get published. But yeah, I mean, Mary Shelley is obviously a better fit for the story we're telling here. But even it's just like, oh, I prefer Mary Shelley. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she died a widow. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, we also get a little bit where Alan introduces Edith to the concept of latent images. And this is a, a fun thing, the kind of thing you would expect in a Del Toro film, but also it cues us in that Alan. Well, he is, yes, boring. He also has a mystery-loving heart to him. So he is interested in the supernatural. He has a penchant for mysteries. You know what? I will give it that, though. He knows Edith is into this, and he Mm -hmm. doesn't, like, look down on her for it. Like, he's very much like, look, I'm into this, too. Fuck me. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I read that as the inference. Like, he wants to fuck her, and she's just like, you're my best friend friend yeah and he's like i got a big old dick maybe average size dick over here for you fuck me here's some ghosts i hear you like ghosts <laughs> i've got a ghost for you <laughs> god i was just gonna make a hog joke because of sons of anarchy but uh you know what let's move on let's move it's on fine. uh we all know that katie seagal is the star of sons of anarchy it's true she's the one with the big dick on that show yeah she is fuck she yeah. really is Ah, oh, Katie Siegel. I love her. Okay. Um, so yes, he also warns her away from Thomas. So of course the next scene that we see is them on a date in the park. It should be noted that the production went to extreme lengths to color code the two like regional differences. So mm. in North America, it's very like kind of golden, which means that Edith is at home. It's also very populated. So like in this scene in particular, we're seeing lots of people out at the park. It's a busy activity. It's teeming with life, even though yes, we do have butterflies who are being eaten by ants in close up 
But uh, when we jump over across the pond, it's desolate. It's wintry. There's nobody around. So I wrote in my notes. I was like, oh, because I was surprised. I was like, oh, wow, we've got Thomas and Lucille conspiring 25 minutes into this movie. And I think that threw me a little bit on a first time watch. And then so okay, let's have this discussion here. Yeah. This movie. Do y'all think it's trying to be a mystery? No. Yeah. I agree with you to an extent. Well, when we get to the murder of his father, because I'm like, why are we even hiding who this is? You can tell it's Chastain's hair. (laughs) Um, But I remember on a first watch, that was a hurdle for me because I was like, this movie's being a very bad mystery because it's not hiding anything. But I feel like on a rewatch, maybe on a first time watch for some people, it's clearly very intentional. This movie is not trying to hide shit (laughs) except for except for the identity of of, of, uh, her dad's murderer for a bit. (laughs) I mean, it literally zooms up on, you know, ants eating a moth. And I don't know, it's more (laughs) blatant than that. So, yeah. Yeah, it it was definitely a stumbling block for me the first time I saw it as well. I still didn't kind of catch it, though, because I think I didn't have the frame of reference of the other films. Like I hadn't seen Rebecca. I yeah, I never read Great Expectations, even though obviously like, you know, you're aware of the property, but I just didn't have the background in gothic horror or gothic romance. So I just thought, yeah, it was kind of doing a shit job at being a mystery Mm -hmm. and i didn't understand why we kept having to see these scenes because it felt like the movie would then explain it you know like we keep seeing them make tea and then and then two (laughs) scenes later if pops up blood and you're like oh what's the correlation i mean like i said earlier this feels like a a book that already exists that has been adapted into a film so like the scene when lucille kills edith's dad it is hiding it because then later when we get the reveal, we have the flashback where it's like, oh, look, it's her. It was like, yes, we know, movie. I get it. <laughs> but I can see like if you were reading a book where it's like at a dark, cloudy, uh, sh- shrouded figure came and like bashed his head into the sand. I, like, I can I can imagine reading that. And this is like the adaptation choice of how we're filming that murder. But it's an original film. Th- that is the only part of the movie where I'm like, why are we hiding this? Like, you're not hiding anything else in this movie. Why are we hiding this part of it? But I guess because they want you to think that maybe Thomas is the one killing him, not Lucille. Yeah, and I mean, I think... But the thing that's that's weak about that is that when we have the ballroom scene, we even have Lucille whisper to Thomas, now is the time. So, like, she's clearly pulling the strings, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like if they leaned a bit more into Thomas Sharp being sort of the conductor, he's the caboose this entire fucking movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's i think a weak part of it and ultimately the romance which we can get into later that's just my most recent feeling about the movie I think, okay. I think it fails on the romance because i think that thomas is a bit too duplicious like the way that he's cast is very like the shadows are always creating a two-face i feel like he's you you see him often talking to lucille in the shadows sort of spurring this thing on and i really don't feel like he tries to put any sort of halt to their plan until it is like fucking too late and you're like dude i don't know if you loved her and i do think that like it really wants us to buy their love and i don't but everything else is working on like cylinders like firing on all cylinders where i think that like it makes up for this in a way i'm glad that you said that but i almost feel like the I feel like romance implies both of them. When I I don't want to say she's too naive or something, but 
she always just seems like I'm doing this because my dad just I it, almost as like she's doing this out of grief. Like she's like, I have nowhere else to go. Let's do this. You do need to buy that he is slowly falling in love with her. And I do agree that him, but I buy him falling in love with her. The same as I buy that he's still being pulled by Lucille and like is just mm. too afraid to break from that link from her until it's too late. And you're right. Like he waits way too long to be like, don't drink that fucking tea. <laughs> but mm. I don't know. I, I, buy, I, I don't necessarily buy them as a couple, but I buy his feelings towards her, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the the two elements that I have issues with are the mystery and the romance. And I think the mystery pulls away from the romance because it's yes. trying to sort of pull the wool over our eyes by saying, hey, Thomas is in control because he's the one who's whispering to Lucille. And you think Thomas is the one that murders uh, her yeah. father. And so I feel like if it ultimately was just Jessica Chastain or Lucille pulling the strings and you saw that, you'd be able to be like, okay – I'll buy by the love. He's as torn because she's in control and it's trying to like have its cake eat this too kind of thing. And yeah. And it's really weird. Cause I've seen this movie multiple times and it's just this last time where I'm watching it and I'm like, I don't feel it. You know, were you watching it with the critical eye before? Is this, is this the first time you're watching it? Like with a critical eye where you're like, I'm going onto a podcast to talk about this, whatever I want to say. <laughs> No, because no, I wrote that piece for uh, Rue Morgue in 2020, so I watched it like oh, yeah, two yeah, yeah. Or, th- or three times. But And I usually watch things with closed captioning. I will say I think this might be the first time I actually watched it with closed captioning because I was very taken aback mm. by Lucille whispering, now is the time, which I didn't really hear before because it's very mm-hmm. much like a kind of blink and you miss it sort of scene. But no. You're right. No, you, 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 it's almost indistinguishable without subtitles. And then I, because mm. I, I saw the subtitle and I was like, oh, I did not know that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I and which I think is why I really, and I mean, I love Crimson Peak, but I think it's why I really love Nightmare Alley. And I think, you know, people were like, oh, I don't know if Del Toro can do this sort of harsh cynicism or like, you know, pointed meanness sort of thing. But like, he, goes all in he doesn't try and sort of juggle things he's just like okay bradley cooper's character is this guy like through and through and that's you know there's nothing else i'm trying to do and with crimson peak i feel like he's just trying to do too much and i think they're at odds with each other and i don't know that's why like when i watch this i'm like okay the ghost scenes are actually kind of chilling the romance is less so so I'm like, okay, it's it's sort of faltering in one area, even though I think it's sort of doing all the trappings of like an old classic, you know, gothic love story. I just wish it wasn't doing the mystery aspect because I think it's just really weak. Yeah. Yeah, it it's tricky. I, I definitely agree with that because particularly on this rewatch, every time the two siblings kind of like go into the shadows and hatch their master plans, I just thought is this because the movie doesn't trust us to understand what's going on? Or is it that Mm -hmm. it's like you said, Trace, not trying to actually hide this from us Mm -hmm. in which case I then go, well, why do we need these scenes at all? Because really the movie still explains itself at various intervals. Like it's not particularly complicated to understand, Mm -hmm. Oh, they're doing this for the money. They're not good. Like to me, the, the only part of the mystery that truly works is when Edith discovers the two of them in bed together, because you're like, oh, I was getting a bit of it, but I 
you know, I thought maybe I was misreading something. They could just be affectionate yeah. siblings or they've been isolated up on this fucking mountaintop for like however long. And it's only really then that you start to realize, oh, OK, they're they're not just murderers. They're not just bad people, but also they're in love with each other. But that's where it's like, I don't know, like when we go into, like, OK, we're doing gothic romance. We're doing like these these influences of like very classic novels and films where it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, honestly. It's more like it, it, pl- it plays out so straightforwardly. But I also kind of want to fan edit where you remove those scenes mm-hmm. of Thomas and Lucille conspiring and yeah. see how the movie plays. Does it play way. better? Does it play better? Yeah, m- maybe it will. I don't know. And honestly, that fan edit probably does exist. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this, It's also the way it frames it. You know, like a lot of times, like they're in the distance, they're drenched in shadows. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the mystique and mystery are all very much part of like the literary gothic sort of romance. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't know, like you cannot have one sort of belittle or take away from the romance because ultimately it is a gothic romance. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in a lot of these examples that we provided, we are always in the POV of the Edith character, we don't mm-hmm. leave that POV. And this film does that. And maybe that's yes. also a subversion that Del Toro was talking about. Mm. Yeah. But again, then I'm kind of like, well, but does it work that way? Again, I still really like this movie, but because Love to me, me yeah. the, the predictability of it only really affects my first time watch where I'm like, Oh, well that's not really like, blah. but watching it, like knowing what it is, I'm kind of like, eh, it's fine. Like I, 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 it doesn't bother me as much as it did on a first time watch, but I'm still kind of confused as to what the intent was here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, when I was sort of rewatching some key scenes earlier um, and my partner was on the couch and they were watching the scene in the ballroom in which Lucille's playing the piano and they walk in and they brought up, uh, was their initial plan to go with Eunice, you know, like were they always mm-hmm. going after Edith and like her father and I feel like they were I never I felt like the plan never was for Eunice you know I feel like the dance never would have happened if Eunice was in that role I know it's trying to say you know you need to be in control or like whoever's leading you know with the candle but ultimately it's a dance like it's two people and I think that like you know sort of symbolizes more of the the sharps working together and moving and at the end you know because he starts to sort of feel something for her the candle goes out and their dance is done right that's interesting greg i i don't know that i entirely agree with that but you raise an interesting point i think maybe the plan was always to go with eunice but then because by this point thomas has already started to fall for edith that's why he makes the switch and he says okay i'm going to do the dance we'll see if it seals the deal and at that point I buy the romance. Like, I love that dance. Like, I think it's like... It's better. Oh, yeah. yeah. They have good chemistry there. Yeah, and it's shot beautifully. Like, I think it's like... The the editing is something I really love in this movie. But yeah, I, I, I buy the romance. It's not until it starts to sort of... After Carter's death, where it starts to employ the mystique and the mystery of it, where, like, it starts to unravel this yeah. thread. And, and that's where I think I think keeping into the POV of Edith would have probably helped the mystery aspect mm. of this film. Um, honestly, it may have even helped the romance aspect of this film. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so Thomas makes plans to propose. He basically says, hey, give me this family ring, which is this large, gaudy kind of ruby thing. It's just so ostentatious, but it's kind of hilarious in how it matches Jessica Chastain's costuming a lot of the film as well. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, before he can actually make that proposal, this is when Mr. Holly returns with some kind of damning evidence. This is, again, part of the mystery. We don't exactly know, but obviously he has dug up some kind of dirt. And this is when Carter pulls them aside, dresses them both down, both of the sharps, and says, I'm going to give you this money to fuck off, but you have to break her heart first. So what he finds out, he he sees the story about the dead mother and he's like... You two fuckers killed your mother. And then he also knows that Thomas is already married. Right. Because no one goes to look for the women that he marries and brings home. I mean, he marries women from foreign countries. So presumably at this day and age, it would have been much harder to have like launched a search or something. It's I love how he's like, oh, I'm going to tell my daughter. Don't you worry. I'm like, maybe you should have told her first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, also, I mean, like, when you get the audio recording that they record, they don't sound like foreign women. They sound like other rich white women whose Mm -hmm. dad maybe have have been murdered or, or, you know. They they said they went after, like, uh, we don't get to meet these women outside of their ghost form, but they said, like, Mm -hmm. they went for women who had big dreams, who were wanting to do something, but, like, they were also, there was something about them that would make, that no one cared about. Oh, it's like the Belle from Beauty and the Beast effect, but it's like, oh, she's a little odd because she likes books. We don't care about her. (laughs) So they're like, let's marry her. No one's going to give a shit about her. (laughs) She even, like, walks through mud in the beginning, you know? Yeah. There goes the banker with his Oh my god, no, like stop always. it. <laughs> We're not doing every two weeks. We're doing a Beauty and the Beast reference, please. Oh, right. We had the mob song a couple of weeks ago. I forgot about that. Ooh, that's a good song. <sighs> okay. So, yes, Thomas does end up breaking Ada's heart in a very spectacular public fashion. I was like, you didn't have to be that mean. Okay, no, no. They're in like the stairwell away from the party and he yells at her and so everyone just comes and rallies around (laughs) to watch him take this woman down (laughs) and he drags her it's enjoyable drags her (laughs) through the mud yeah uh greg you mentioned some of the editing i do want to give this movie a shout out for using an iris transition uh, between the scenes it's very much Multiple. selling this kind of uh, fairy tale mm-hmm. book quality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we get the one of the ring. We get the one. It's always highlighting something, right? Like we're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I guess that's important for later. 
yeah and in this case yeah. it's oh there's lucille hiding in the fucking shadows oh i love that shot though because it's like she's just covered in darkness i love mm-hmm. that shot yeah i mean i love the way it sort of implies that like lucille almost is already dead like she's sort of like in a like a ghost yeah. herself because mm-hmm. she is sort of an extension of her mom who's dead yeah i love all those shots really well done Oh my god, that's what this movie's missing. It's missing Thomas being like, you're just as bad as mom was. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm actually surprised we don't get a mom. Do we Do we get their ghost mom at any point? We do, point? in the bathtub. Oh, that's who she is. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. Cleaver in the head almost split her skull completely in half. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so the very next day after this public debacle goes down and the siblings have been paid off, Carter is mysteriously and brutally murdered in this old-fashioned men's bathroom. I love how nice he is to his servants. He's like, if you would be so kind, thank you. Oh my god. (laughs) I love the paper. (laughs) Yeah, but you know if they were like, oh, all we have is decaf, he'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I'm watching that. I'm like, this guy starts his day like this every morning. Mm-hmm. Shaving with coffee, eggs, son of a bitch. Oh, he a little bit of port. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did love that detail. Mm. <laughs> He's a day drinker. I really shouldn't, but I think today I will. <laughs> Is it Saturday? It's like I got rid of the Is sharps. Time to be naughty. <laughs> Does it end with why? <laughs> In that case, port. Yes. Yes. Please pour it. Please pour, pour it. Pour it up. Uh, okay, so Edith then gets a letter from Thomas. So she makes what I wrote in my notes as a rom-com dash to go and catch him. Oh my god! At, at the hotel, <laughs> I I wrote my notes, this rom-com bit of her trying to catch him at the hotel before, but he's already gone. Oh no! It's just the maids there. Sorry, you missed him. He just got on the plane. I mean, no, sorry, he just left. Actually, the little detail that I really liked was when she runs into his room and the maids are they're they're they're, they're black maids and they're they're like laughing and having a good time. And the second mm-hmm. she runs in, they're like, <gasps> yeah, their complete demeanor changes. Yeah. Don't fire quiet. us. We need these jobs. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, these are also the only people of color in this entire movie. We only see yes. black servants. Yes. It's very white. Uh, okay, yeah. So they end up kissing, and the score swells, and it's immediately undercut because then she learns that her dad has died. Um, I will say this: Vasikovska's performance during in the morgue this, scene, the yeah. morgue scene is really good. I mean, I, I, she's like, he's turning sixty next week. He's afraid of looking his age. You see, I, mm. I, this, this, it's all good. Really good. <laughs> mm. I actually feel like that's my favorite part of this film in terms of like the emotional component. Like the romance for me does not work yeah. at all. I don't buy either side of it, but her relationship with her dad to me yeah. is kind of the cornerstone. It it does allow me to believe that, yeah, she would make a very bad impulsive decision and say, okay, well, I guess I'll just marry this man who shows me affection at both the morgue as well as the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get the sense that I don't know, all she has is her dad. And then, you know, what is she left with? But, I mean, that scene right there is, like, I think one of her best acted scenes, because I love her mm-hmm. in um, Maps of the Stars and uh, Piercing, the uh, Rio Morikami oh, adaptation. Yeah, Piercing. Good, good, good. Yeah. Good, good call. 
Yeah, she's mm-hmm. she's really good, but like, yeah, I mean, what we talked about before, Alice in Wonderland, woof. No, it's just that that movie isn't about actors. It's about special effects. So the actors are just there to move the plot maybe around. Okay. Um, End of act one, by the way. (laughs) I was going to say, so this is where we transition over. So we move over to Cumberland, England, and the carriage is arriving at Allerdale Hall. We see that it is situated at the top of a hill of red clay and we talked about the the sets and the production design. Uh, I'll just name the individual responsible. That would be mm-hmm. Tom Sanders. All right. Who also did Bram Stoker's Dracula. One oh. of the best movies ever. Oh, Fucking perfect. Fuck. Yeah. Good on you, Greg. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just everything about this house is sheer perfection so i actually have a question for the two of you in terms of iconic horror or horror adjacent houses you know we talked about the shining obviously that's one but would you say that this is like in the pantheons is it better than some of the dark castle houses like house on haunted hill or 13 ghosts I wish we had more exterior shots of this house. I'm not going to lie. I feel like we, I really know the interiors of it, but I never really get a lot of exterior shots because I, even with The Haunting, even the 1999 remake mm. of The Haunting, they really get like the scope of how big and enormous this house. And I know this house is like enormous, but like I wish we had more of that. But I love the interior. I think it's all, well, gorgeous, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is. I think it's better than all of those except for the robert wise haunting but yeah i mean i'm glad oh, okay. you brought up the 1999 one because i saw it in theaters and like i love the rooms i think it like puts a lot of emphasis on like the hallways and then you have the staircase mm-hmm. and i think that it sort of focuses on minimal rooms within a larger scale house and i think here it's like yeah you have the stairs you have the kitchen you have her room, the hallways, like the bathroom. I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it's a lot of times when I watch a movie that takes place within a house, I'm like, I'm like, what the fuck? They didn't show enough of this. There wasn't enough no. get a sense of direction, scope. And I think that's why, like, you know, The Shining is always brought up because it's like you get a sense of it while also not, you know, it's just like the hallways make right. no sense, you know. But the 1999 haunting, I will go ahead and say, I haven't rewatched it, but I will say I like it. I like it. I don't think it's as bad as everyone says it is. I, I mean, like, from a production yeah. standpoint, I think it's fantastic. It's just really long. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I saw it in theaters when I was 10 years old. And granted, I was a 10 year old kid who really wanted to go see Sleepy Hollow, but couldn't. So I had to go see The Haunting instead, which mm-hmm. is fine because I really wanted to see that, too. But I loved it as a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn until much later in life that it was a very like maligned film and i actually have not watched it since like i found out it was maligned and so i don't i don't know how it would play for me now but as a kid i loved it (laughs) yeah i thought its casting was really great outside owen wilson who i don't even recall because i've read the book too i just don't recall who he plays but i thought Catherine zeta jones was uh excellent she's good but no owen wilson plays luke and he gets decapitated by a big old lion head I mean, that doesn't mean he's good. That just means his death is good. He's the comic relief. Um, but it's like Chekhov's um, whatever that thing is in the chimney. <laughs> they, I, yeah. But again, a 10 year old in the theater watching a PG-13 horror movie where this guy just gets decapitated. 
Trace was born. It's arguably the best part of the film. It is a really good part of the film, actually. But anyway, all right, <laughs> continue. <laughs> okay, so we have shifted over to this kind of cold, desolate, isolated place. And almost immediately, we also notice that Edith is seeing things. So she sees a ghostly apparition in the elevator, but then also really see a change come over Lucille, who is now very controlling and very chilly. And this is where the Rebecca stuff comes in, right? Like, yes, this is this Mrs. Danversing it up and down. So good. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Actually, Joe, question for you, because you have mentioned on a couple previews for this episode that you're like bisexual energy, Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. Where are you pulling that from in this movie? OK, I, I was actually going to pull this in later, but we can have the okay. conversation now. I see it. One is that Jessica Chastain is actually on record as sort of covertly playing Lucille as she thinks about women and has no interest in men except for her brother. Right. So technically it wasn't something she was directed to do, even though all of the actors were apparently given like extensive character study notes, like backgrounds, things that you like and things that you don't like. Apparently Lucille does not like American music or big teeth. That was one of the things that Del Toro gave her. <laughs> so that tooth to gum ratio. She's like, no, nope, no, Gina no, Davis for you got to get you. the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so Chastain took it upon herself to say, like, part of her buttoned up sort of very uh, restrictive personality is in part uh, a response to that. And then the other piece that I draw it from is the fact that Thomas is always the one who has to get married. So this is his fourth marriage. Oh. He always has to go out. And you could argue that it's because Lucille is like more fucked up. She doesn't like to leave the house and she's not good with people. But I also look at it as, oh, her relationship is that she likes to take care of women. It started with her mom. But then when she was poisoning all these women, she was doting on them. She was looking after them. Huh. It's very much the kind of relationship that you have where it's like misery. You want to make that person incapacitated so that then they have to rely on you. She's Munchausen's by proxying them. Yeah, yeah. It's Munchausen by proxy for sure. Especially when she talks about the relationship that she had, like nursing her mother back to health. I was like, oh, you like doing that to all of these women. And also you enjoy keeping things like their suitcases down in the cellar. You've got these mementos of these women, I think in part because you wanted to fuck them as much as. You know, I I didn't even think of that because I was very much like, why the fuck did she keep this bitch's trunk in the basement like, <laughs> and the key <laughs> on her keychain? Mm -hmm. But. Oh, Enola wanted to pork you, had to kill you. I wouldn't watch because I, I I was trying to look for this going in. And I was like, well, she just wants to fuck her brother. I love that. I love that. I, I, I did not pull that even on my own, like watching that last night. So I, I'm glad that you actually use that. You provided textual evidence for your claim. <laughs> I mean, not really. It's very, very inferred. And I think you could just as easily say, oh, well, the queer element is that, oh, it's an incest relationship. Incest. No, but there's the scene sort of later on in the third act where Edith is like really sick and she like leans in. She's like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to take care of you. It's OK. Like almost yes. like don't trust him. And watching that, I was like, huh, I think there's like an instance in which she's actually falling for Edith. And that's mm -hmm. what sort of yes. makes her more upset that Edith isn't reciprocating and that 
she doesn't get to partake in this relationship because yeah, yeah. it's very much like a almost like a phantom thread thing where it's like i'm just like mm-hmm. I'm making me sick but like i actually love it when you're weak and i get to dote on you you know yes but it's the egg scene oh yeah like it's because you obviously yes yeah, surface level you can read it as well she's really mad that her brother fucks someone else because she wants mm-hmm. her brother for herself but yep. she has the confrontation with edith not with thomas yeah so and that's vital that's vital to that read mm-hmm yeah, and then, of course, we have this history of reserved lesbians. Like, if we read her as the Miss Danvers of this One, house. Yes, the, the, if you want to make this a Rebecca comparison, bam, <laughs> right mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like I love, I think, about her performance is that, like, for most of it, she comes off like a Miss Havisham from, like, Wuthering Heights, very, like, yes. sort of mm-hmm. very old in her ways. But then, like, and this might paint a bad picture of me, when she gets caught digging deep into her brother's pants, it's kind of mm-hmm. hot. Um, I, re- hot. <laughs> I wrote, oh my god, she's giving him an angry handy J. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fine, I will do this for you. You just have to promise that you're going to kill this girl that I have feelings for. <laughs> it's like, oh, I hope she's using some kind of lubricant because that is going to like rub him raw. Girl, like, okay. You can cut this out, but like when you're masturbating and you pre-com and like you like rub the tip of your dick raw, which I've absolutely done before, <laughs> worst feeling in the world. And then it gets like a scab over it later because you rubbed it raw. Oh my god, how hard are you oh, masturbating? What the fuck? I'm a teenager. <laughs> oh, yes. okay. I was like, no, no, no. If no, this I, was I, recent, I, we have to talk. Okay, yesterday. so um, no, no, no. So, so it's like, a, okay, like if well, oh, actually, it might not work if you're uncircumcised. I'm sorry because you have your foreskin. Um, but if you don't have foreskin and you pre-cum. Uh, it just gets on the top of your head, so you're ready, but then it dries out, and so you keep jacking right. off, and it's like friction on the, your dickhead, right. and it starts to hurt, and you're like, but I still want to come, so you keep going, but you've rubbed it so raw that literally, like, two days later, it like it's like a layer of dry skin over your dickhead. <laughs> Ouch. That's why I, I wish I was uncircumcised. I, 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 I wish I had foreskin. <laughs> well, as someone who still has, there's there's pros and cons so yeah there's always pros and cons both of you okay i need to, i need to, i need someone else in my court to understand this <laughs> you're not gonna get it here sorry i know <laughs> um okay so the the weird elements just kind of keep adding up we've got ghosts occasionally showing up we've got edith running a bloody bath but of course that's just a response to the clay that's in the soil around the house uh, yes, we've got the Anola key that, of course, reveals a suitcase that has evidence that Thomas was trying to oh, sell various things. All the information she needs <laughs> is on these gramophone things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I appreciate that because literally, so when we go from Act Two, which is eighty minutes into the movie, we got forty minutes left. Edith knows everything, and I really yes. appreciate that. Yeah, I mean. I think her finding all of it so easily and all of it laid out, it kind of makes the mystery angle a bit insulting, where it's just like the like the movie's yeah. like, try and figure it out, we're giving you clues, but then it's just like, no. <laughs> or it's all here. To. But that's what that's what I'm like. Does the movie have a mystery angle? I'm like, I don't I don't know. I want to talk to Del Toro and, and be like what were you doing with this? Like, what, what was going on here? Were you, did you think you were making a mystery or did you not? And you were like, fuck it. We'll just throw in some mystery elements, even though there's no mystery here. I mean, isn't the co-writer also the one who did mimic? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how Greg cannot let that go. 
I'm just saying, Mimic has a mystery angle that's really just, like, uh, terrible. I rewatched <laughs> Mimic four years ago and still really liked it. But I, now, now knowing that you hate it, I might be like, hmm, let me go back and watch this movie. <laughs> just see what it's like. You're going to love it more. I know. Probably. Like, Fuck Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Him and his uh, uncircumcised D. <laughs> so now we have to keep that whole conversation. I in. know. <laughs> you know what? Fine. Fuck it. I'll, I'll let people know that I've All rubbed right. my dick raw via masturbation. You know what? Relatable <laughs> content, Trace. That's what we're here for. Young boys, don't rub your dick raw while masturbating. If you have foreskin, though, you're fine. All right, you moving on. Moving on. <laughs> um, let's 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 talk about this picture of Mama in the kitchen because did she pose for that painting and did she sign off on it because she looks like a fucking crone. Honestly, <laughs> the the missing element in this movie is so. I, w- w- what room is this? It's a library, right? It's a library slash piano room music room yeah okay. so the idea is that each of the siblings have like half of the room it reflects their personality i always think about scary movie too and it's like cindy the music room the mu- check the fucking music room um <laughs> this portrait needed to be over the fireplace in mm-hmm. the main hall i don't know right. why it wasn't here like th- this specter of this of this portrait needed to be looming over the entire film yeah but there was no main hall was there yeah, because we have the fucking hole in the roof. <laughs> no, that's the foyer. <laughs> Would you be interested in, to know, Trace? I saw a couple of reviews refer to this as an Oculus. Oh, okay. Weird, eh? Yeah, that's... Wait, I'm sorry. Like, because it's not a mirror. I just think of Oculus as a mirror, but is there another definition for Oculus? <laughs> well, Oculus actually means like oval. Oh. Mirror. Oh, I'm just oh. thinking of the movie then. Yes. <laughs> All right, Same. ignore okay. that. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> we should also acknowledge that Alan is still a character who shows up occasionally in this movie. And meanwhile, he has been doing some deduction alongside, uh, what's this character's name? We've got William Ferguson, the lawyer, played by Bruce Gray, who basically says, hey, isn't it weird that she's basically selling off the entire house and also... <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, but to make a joke, the dog is more of a character in this movie than Mr. <laughs> Charlie Hunan. <laughs> yeah, but like Charlie Hunan, I mean, this movie's so white that they end up making like the Dick Halloran character. Like, mm-hmm. th- that's what he ends up doing. He's like, yeah, I need a yes. carriage. They're like, no, all the characters are snowed in. He's like, I need a horse. Oh, like, oh, no more horse. God. He's like, I'm going to walk. Really? He is the Dick Halloran character. Never thought Remove of it. the romance aspect and he's a much better character. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, scout man. I mean, I will say, I'm actually very surprised that this movie doesn't end with a marriage. I would have thought that it would end with the two of them getting married. I guess technically they're kind of like crossing the threshold at the end but together. But we, we don't mm. see him again after uh, after Edith runs up to the snow we never see him again right oh no she definitely picks him up and they walk together to the gate oh yeah. cut that out um <laughs> well yeah well, they don't get married so yay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no i mean uh i guess that's the other weak aspect is the you know that romance mystery mystery and romance 
Wow. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. As much as we were saying the mystery and romance in this gothic romance isn't working for us, I still really enjoy this movie. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Love it. No, that's what I'm saying. It's a five-star movie for me still. <laughs> I don't know. So, okay. Let's talk about some of the good stuff. The siblings conspire to get her to sign this inheritance, but they have to go to the depot in town. And at this point, Edith has begun coughing up blood. She's not feeling super well. She's going a little stir crazy. So she and Thomas go on what effectively could be construed as a a honeymoon weekend, right? So they go, they pick up some supplies for his stupid MacGuffin machine, and she gets letters that will eventually reveal, hey, there's people looking for these women in other countries, but also storms coming in. So we got to go to pound town. <laughs> I just love to before all it's like, you just like, how are you? Uh, Lucy's like, how are you feeling? Oh, you know, I'm a little sick. Oh, that's great. Have some tea. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. You have, have some tea. <laughs> Literally like girl, you've been sleepwalking. No, you can't go anywhere. Also have some more tea. <laughs> have some more tea. Fucking drink the tea. And when you don't drink the tea, I'm going to put it in the porridge. Oh, I put the poison in the porridge. That should be the name of this movie. (laughs) Poison in the porridge. (laughs) I think that's a chapter heading. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I I like Pound Town better. Pound Town. Okay. I mean, we get some Hiddleston butt, so. Oh, oh, also, yes. Speaking Mm. of Edith for being a little virgin. uh, (laughs) Oh, Just rides the dick she just straddles him and it's like all right i'm ready to go <laughs> she's subverting the sex <laughs> that's a subversion <laughs> <laughs> she's secretly a huge slut she's just been banging everybody back well she i because whenever lucille shows her the, the the kama sutra on the edge of the book and she's like mm-hmm. well this can't be a huge surprise to you you've been deep dicked already well no actually not yet <laughs> Oh, I do love that moment because you know that Lucille knows because she's been watching them through all the fucking keyholes in this house. But she's like, oh, I guess you have not consummated the marriage. I am a sucker for someone spying (laughs) through a keyhole. I love that shit. (laughs) Holding a candelabra. (laughs) Davitha, do we have a candelabra? I need to see the fucking through the keyhole. (laughs) What's behind the candelabra? Liberation. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edith is more of a Jennifer Check than a than a needy. Very. Oh yeah. Slut. <laughs> she knows about the dick. She knows how to work it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So yes, uh, the married couple come back. We get this big confrontation with eggs in the kitchen. It's very exciting. Man, Lucille is not hiding anything. Much hmm. like the movie, very well. The way. <laughs> The way she slams this pot of eggs. <laughs> so good. She's like, I'm not jealous that you're fucking my brother. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, those are not look good looking eggs. <laughs> well, they were burned. <laughs> well, uh, okay, so I meant to ask you, are we to infer that they were abused by their mother as children? Because there is a scene early when we first meet Lucille after she's finished playing the piano at the ball. We see a close up of her pulling her sleeve up over her hand as if to cover like scars. I would say yes to that statement. Okay. Out of that, they're trying to make her seem so unhinged. She's like done self harm oh, kind of thing, which is. I, I, I would if she if it was self-harm, I would read that as a re- direct result of the 
I would say even emotional abuse mm. that she endured. But 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 no, yeah. but no, but, uh, because she says later in the film, you have no idea how many lashings I took because she was right. protecting her brother from her mother's mm. abuse. Oh. And we also don't know what happened to her in the institution where she was sent <laughs> at age 14 after killing her mother. Um, age 14 after killing mother in like the early 1900s. <laughs> and she's a woman with a cleaver. Yeah. Okay, so Edith grabs the keys, she finds the Enola suitcase, she grabs the gramophone piece, she listens, oh my god, the poison is in the tea, she tries to make a run for it, shit, I'm still in England in the middle of winter, giant <laughs> storm, so she just kind of lays down on the stairs, and she wakes up, and yeah, this is where we learn a little bit more about how Lucille took care of mom, she's there to make her feel better, I do love that we get this get out moment, I mean, obviously, this is before Get Out, but Lucille with the spoon just scraping oh. the edge of the teacup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, Jordan Peele, you owe Guillermo some some dividends there. <laughs> uh, OK, we're fully having those siblings now have conversations like, OK, so now we got a killer. We need the money. You need to kill her. Like, we're not trying to hide what's going on at all. And. This is where we go to the attic and Edith sees the fucking. It's important <laughs> to notice that from this point on, Lucille doesn't wear restrictive clothing anymore because basically she's been unmasked. So she's wearing this kind of off the shoulder oh. flowy gown because she's like uninhibited and fully mad. I want this gown right now. I I want to walk outside as the Colorado wind mm-hmm. and just like angel arms up and just let it blow. This is the most gorgeous thing. And it's even better when it's stained with blood. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see you in this. Oh, my God. <laughs> I need to get one. Uh, her, oh, is her, her hair is still up, though, isn't it? At this point, no. Now it's down. OK, good. Yeah, I was like, yeah, her hair needs to be down out of that tight ass bun that she killed the dad mm-hmm. in. Well, it can't be up because she just got fucked. So oh, yeah. <laughs> as we know, I don't think they if you let it. your hair down, that basically means like, oh, you've you become uninhibited yeah. and or deranged or you got deep dicked. OK, but she's no, she's been fucked before because she had a wrong turn, baby, that they had to kill. Oof. Yeah. Oh, wrong turn. <laughs> what a reference. Incest, baby. You know what, Greg? If you watch Wrong Turn 6, you would know. Yeah. <laughs> uh. You mean five, six? I know you can skip five, but actually six has a lot in common because that is a very a big incest movie. So it's a big incest. Movie. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, when we cover six, we'll have you come back. We will cover six at some point. It'll happen. Okay, so at this point, this is where you know all the cards are on the table. Everybody yeah. knows what's going on. So Lucille does not have to pretend anymore. So she immediately grabs that fucking ring off of her finger and pushes Edith over this banister two stories down. So okay, my question is this: um, I know that Charlie Hunnam comes in, but they let him mm-hmm. like sedate her, fix her leg. Why fix don't they the just leg. kill him? I feel like it's because they needed her to still sign the document. Oh, they needed her fixed up. And then as soon as he patched up the leg, now we're good to kill him. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He knew something was up from the get go, but he went in there so unprepared. He like turned his back on. And that's what I kind of love about it, though, is that he does. He turns his back on Lucille. He's so shit. Almost as if she's not a threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And it's like, dude, no, she's in control. Just look at her. Her fucking hair's down. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how malicious this stab wound is, though. Like, she gets him right in mm-hmm. the armpit to try to get right to the heart. Mm-hmm. It is brutal. He has a medical degree, right? And he pulls it out. <laughs> I know. I was like, or right, leave it in there until you have help. Yeah, but at least he yeah. knows where to let, where to tell Thomas to stab him later. So he's like, all right, I guess I'll like survive this wound again. Yeah, fake stab me here so I don't die. Yeah, never mind the other stab wound <laughs> I also have. I will say that I mean, like walking into this movie, not realizing that it was going to be Jessica Chastain's movie. Um, this is Jessica mm. Chastain's third act. Like, oh my god, everything she's mm. doing in this mm. whole thing is wonderful. Because I, I, oh. I love the cold icing. Like, again, like that Miss Danvers, Miss Havisham, where it's oh, like she's putting up an air, but she's still an icy cold bitch. But mm-hmm. once that mask comes off, man, it is. Rah, love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Oh, yeah. I love, so, I love like the, so the, the, the wail that she has that you could hear like off in the corner. Like it <gasps> sounds like almost like the wind, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I will say this is the point of the film. I said earlier, I don't really buy the love story all that much. Um, this is the point where Thomas's redemption arc begins. And I really wish that the film didn't do this. I know we have to because we have to believe that he truly does believe Edith. But this idea that, yeah, OK, I'm not going to kill Alan I'm because I'm not a murderer. Fine, whatever. But this idea that now he's going to go back against Lucille, he's had a change of heart because this is the woman that he actually loves. The other yeah. three can go fuck themselves, apparently. I, I, I don't know what. Why is this one different? Yes. Well, not, not even why is this one different? Because, again, like we're supposed to believe that from the get go, he has fallen for her. But right. why now? Why now? Why now in this particular moment is he like, you know what? I'm going to start helping her. And I'm really sorry because I just saw this in my notes and it was like, but right before she pushes her off that railing, mm-hmm. <laughs> that dialogue exchange was like, I knew it. You're not his sister. And she's like, that's delightful. I am. <laughs> and just pushes her off. <laughs> so good. I mean, I, yeah, I don't understand why at this point he decides to help her, but I get the sense that in all the other uh, faux marriages, he's not the one that does the killing. So when he actually has yeah, to do it, never. he's no. sort of like, you know, show me a spot in which I won't kill you because I guess that's like too much for his conscience. Oh, yeah. So I took it, I guess. Maybe it's him seeing her push her off the railing. Like it's an actual act of violence as opposed to mm. poison, which, as we've discussed, Joe, is a quote unquote woman's weapon. Right. But we actually see Lucille commit mm. an act of violence by pushing her off this railing. And so he's like, ooh, it just got real, even though I've literally had three wives die. <laughs> question for you two do you think he fucked the other wives and is maybe that's what is different about this maybe that's what's different um i don't know i just find it weird to believe that they wouldn't have fucked but maybe would have found an excuse to not i mean it took it seemed to take a lot longer to get the paperwork and to get edith to sign it right like it had to take two parts i wonder if all the other heiresses it was just like oh yeah we got a correspondence and now you did yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that they probably didn't fuck because I think uh-huh. that, I mean, I'm even surprised that Edith and Thomas fucked because she's already been poisoned. She doesn't really feel that well, mm-hmm. but like, damn, does she fucking hop the D. And all the other women are sort of made to be a bit, I don't know, they seem older. 
I guess. Well, mm. but 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 they, they only fucked because they were out of the house. She had the energy right. to fuck him because they were out of the house, and that house was oppressive to her. Whereas I don't think any of those other women ever got out of that house. Right. Yeah, and I, and I, that's what I love sort of about the comparison to um, the haunting is that like I view the house as like this living, breathing thing that's sort of like gesticulating. Yeah, yeah. It has like the blood, the, the clay in the basement that's like you know it has a body in it. It's making these sounds that sound very like wailing. And yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I I love the house as its own like entity. Yeah, yeah, and and how it contributes to both Edith's mental health and presumably Lucille's insanity. Oh mm. wait, I'm sorry. Um, we know that none of these women fuck Thomas because literally the only f bomb we get in this movie is Lucille going, um, "What about Enola? You killed her baby. I did not. None of them ever fucked Thomas. It was mine." Mm. because it's her, it was the incest baby the wrong turn baby yeah. right <laughs> but also so wait lucille hid a pregnancy for nine months well so no no she didn't hide it because literally did you watch the end of the movie i'll throw that right back no. at you uh she says enola told me because we should have killed the baby when it was born because it wasn't mm. right enola told me she could fix it and she lied and that's when she killed enola uh, hmm. because enola was i guess a nurse I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of E's. Edith, Enola, what were the other two names? Mm-hmm. Uh, Pamela was one of them. But 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 Enola's the only important one because of the letter. Because we think it's for Edith. The Edith Sharp. E Sharp. Right. Mm. <laughs> Definitely one of those gothic romance kind of conventions. Like, they just happen to have the same initial. And therefore, we can confuse the women when we write to them. I'm actually really surprised there's not something <laughs> with a piano key on E Sharp. Like being a, a really important part of some fucking secret passage or something where it's like, play E sharp and the door opens. <laughs> God. Well, maybe that's like part of, you know, uh, the, the song that Lucille is playing. Maybe. I have to do maybe. some uh, investigating. All right. So we're we're near the end here. So Lucille is laying all of her cards on the table. She explains, yeah, she has this monstrous love for her brother Edith is basically incapacitated at this point because of her leg. So it's like, cool. All you can do is fight back using the weapons you got, which includes that pen that dad gave you. So <gasps> stab her right in the tit. That This is glorious. This, this <laughs> like, not just like, just right through that tit heart, like just mm-hmm. right there. And she is bleeding, bleeding yep. out of her chest. It is great. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, at this point, that's when Edith makes a run for it. Thomas helps her out. And then we get this brother-sister battle. And Lucille stabs him a bunch of times, including in the face. Jesus, I, I don't think I've seen anything like this before. Even him, like, slowly pulling it out. Uh-huh. Well, and the, the blood fills his eye. You're like, ooh, girl. That, I love that, that part. That blade <laughs> went into your brain and you were going to mm. die. Like, Oh, sure. Ooh, boy. Yeah. I do love that we don't try to pretend that he's going to be okay or even that he has like a bunch more time left. He basically dies yeah. right yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that Lucille is now completely off Unhinged. the charts deranged because she has just realized she killed the love of her life. So, yes, we get the elevator and then we get the staircase and then we get a bit more elevator. <laughs> wait, wait, y'all, what if the romance and the gothic romance isn't Thomas and Edith? What if it's Thomas and Lucille? Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that makes more sense. I mean, yeah. like, I, I, 
like because to me the the tragedy is when she kills thomas like mm-hmm. as as horrible as she is that look on her face is true despair and so i don't know maybe, maybe that's like maybe that's also the subversion right where it's like, oh it's not the romance you think it's the other romance but then right. you don't really empathize with her so i don't know yeah well i mean i mean you do with the domineering mother who is abusive i think mm-hmm. she's like a byproduct of abuse but yeah i think like the shock in Thomas's face when he gets stabbed, almost like a, he just yeah. did that, you know? Like, there's something very, like, tragic and sort of startling about that. So, yeah, that's, yeah I like that. Yeah. I, I like that. It's, again, the kind of thing where Chastain is so good in this role, and it's really fun to watch mm. her go off, like, yeah. in these final moments, right? When she becomes the villainess of this film. It's super fun. She is so out of control like i love the entire showdown out on the actual like crimson soil both women are covered in blood at this point we've got the pounding machine in the background and everything like Wait, it's all very exciting before we even get out there when they're facing off in the room with the clay pots there's mm-hmm. li- they're like on opposite sides of the room and there's a part where she just hisses at her She's like, <laughs> 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 i'm like yeah do it <laughs> get her that's funny. I I had seen a couple of people say, you know, oh, this film's campy. And I don't agree with that. But I do think that Chastain's role here, like the way that she's delivering some of these lines, just the sheer antics of it, it does I mean, feel like, oh, OK, it looks like she could bite a piece of the set off. I don't want to say hysterics. I feel like that's a wrong word to use when we're talking about women. But like just the hysterical nature of her performance. It, I guess you, I, I could see how someone would read this as camp, but it mm-hmm. never feels to me. Camp is like above and beyond. Like, you know, it's like this heightened reality. Like you are going outside of the realms of normal reactions to things. Right. I never find Lucille's reactions to be outside the realms of reality. I thought I find all this very believable because she's unhinged, mm-hmm. but I, I, I wouldn't disagree with someone saying, Oh, it's camp P but I don't yeah. think it's camp. I don't think it's camp. No. I mean, I think the scene where she slams the the cast iron down and the eggs, eggs. sort of like bloop, you know, it's a little That's bit more campy. Because, yeah. Sure. yeah. Because like, I don't know. I mean, the food looks disgusting. It's just a sudden burst. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't agree that it's camp, but I don't know. A few things achieve that nowadays. Yeah. I will say one of my favorite moments in this kind of multifaceted climax is when she just grabs Edith's knife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So she refuses to let go. And of course, Edith pulls back. So she basically just like slices off part of her own hand. Like she slices her own palm. No, yeah, yeah, Mm. no, it's uh, sorry, I, I I know I like pulled you back into the clay basin, but we're back up here. But like all the mm-hmm. shots where we have Edith like looking around, like like wandering the fog and be like whatever, whatever, whatever. But mm-hmm. we have these shots of uh, Lucille like running behind her, but she's almost like gliding through the fog like a ghost or a mm-hmm. vampire. It is so yeah. awesome. It look this looks fantastic, <laughs> and, and yeah. yes, that, that her pulling on that knife. Ooh! <laughs> Yeah, she, she she sort of glides around like one of, uh, you know, Dracula's brides. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was giving me a little 30 days a night 
Yeah, 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 that too. I mean, but what I love about, like, the scene where she grabs the knife is that, like, it's just sort of her putting on display, like, her past of being abused and the sort of, mm. the pain of it is mm. just non-existent. But, yeah, I, I love that right. final confrontation. But then who kind of saves the day but the ghost of Thomas, who's pulling a Chris Kattan from House on Haunted <laughs> Hill. Um, luckily, it's just a distraction. <laughs> wait, wait, y'all tell me this. If you're in a fight with someone, would you tell them you're going to have to kill me because I am literally not going to stop until I kill you? Because I feel like that means, okay, well, you only got now one I choice. Kill you. <laughs> yeah, like they're, they're going to kill you or they're going to do the same thing. I would tell them that because then they might be like, wait, I can get through to you. No. <laughs> no. But I mean, also, I wouldn't trust someone if they said, oh, look behind you yeah. when you're in the middle of a fight to the yeah. death. <laughs> Oh, but I believe this, though, because she's she is insane by this. Point, oh, sure. And she is so desperate to see her brother again. Like, I believe it. Um, and I love that her fate is that she's going to fucking play piano for the rest of her life and never see her brother again. <laughs> right. Well, I I feel like they're both trapped there. Oh, yeah. No, I, I yeah. do think that. I don't know. She's oh, it's just weird because you it doesn't show you a final shot of Ghost Thomas. It's just her playing the piano. Mm-hmm. But again, which is why I kind of think, is there something having to do with the E sharp key? Like, is that her sort of doting over this lost love of Edith Sharp or even Alona or Enola? Enola, that's it. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Because the design of all the ghosts, I mean, like, you know, we had the mom with cholera who's all black. Any of the ghosts, the uh, the wives, they're all red because they're they're mm-hmm. buried in the clay liquid shit. Right. Thomas looks quote unquote normal white pasty ghost with his blood coming out of his cheek. But then Lucille blackened. I guess yeah. she's just like a normal ghost. <laughs> like playing this piano. Yeah, I mean, she uh, she looks sort of like her mother did. Like, well, not red, but Mhm. Yeah, there's something yeah. like 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 deeply darkened about her, but yeah, I don't know the whole like yeah like you know look behind you and she buys it, uh, and yeah that the the Thomas Ghost thing I just really don't care it. for. Yeah, yeah, I, I I buy it. I just why is he out there? It would have worked better if it, he wasn't actually there. Yeah, right. Like still have her say it, but don't have him be there. Yeah, yeah. like Edith knows that the one thing she could use against Lucille yeah. would be the love of her brother. It's the reason why she's done all of this, really. But I, I think the other thing that bothers me is the sort of brightness of the daytime, even though mm. the fog is masking some of it. The FX work on Tom Hiddleston here yeah. looks super dodgy, and it takes me right out, unfortunately. And it's meant to be this emotional climax, right? Like, oh, this is the thing that's going to save you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it in terms of we're using the ghosts against you because the ghosts, in fact, were always trying to tell Edith, hey, we're on your side. We're trying to help you to get out of this. It's not necessarily a subversion. It's pretty classic gothic romance, i was gonna say but... like like that, that's well-worn territory right like the ghosts you think are ghosts fucking scooby-doo on zombie island does it with the zombies <laughs> oh my god of course you had to sneak a reference <laughs> the zombies are good they're warning you go away <laughs> it's like in zombie beavers where the beavers are good and they're trying to warn you get out of the water <laughs> okay but that's not factual mine was fact beware of zombie island Moonscar island <laughs> check the fucking music room <laughs> the music room the music <laughs> Music room. <laughs>
Okay. So she anyway, writes a book. <laughs> Edith grabs Alan. They walk towards the gate and we see the storm is broken. So all of those dumb people from town have wandered up the end. It's a and book. Yep. She, she writes a book. book. The book is Crimson Peak. Yeah, it's like Sleeping Beauty, but Crimson Peak. I mean, you could have said Little Women, too, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Greg, as the guest of honor, final thoughts on Crimson Peak after all the making fun of it we've done in, for the past two hours. Um, Greg, Tabitha, what did we think of Crimson Peak? <laughs> Scariest fucking movie. Um, I think that <laughs> it does so many things well on like uh mm -hmm. it's funny that cinematography um same dan lauston who did league of extraordinary gentlemen because it sort of has that oh. look almost yeah. but yeah. with a much higher production value and also whoever's doing you know set pieces but i think it's really great despite the flaws of its core mm -hmm. romance and yeah, I have issues with the mystery of it. I think that they should have really just given it more of like we all like both of you said Edith POV for most of it because mm -hmm. we get lost in uh, essentially the fog. Like I like and but I don't know. I've seen this movie so many times where it's at a point where I'm seeing new things and I'm feeling new things, but it will never take away from how much I love of it as a ghost story because I like this mm. I, watching it last night. I was like, you know, the scenes with the ghosts in the hallway. I actually think it is really creepy. And even yeah. Trace, you posted the scene where the ghost is like peering through the doorway, and right, they're all yeah. chilling. And I think that it's done in sparse bits where it's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's not overkill. And I don't know. I I, I do really love Edith and Lucille. Uh, I can take Thomas. I think. Really, he's aside from Charlie Hunnan, I think he's the weaker link. But yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, Chastain's like she's doing a lot of a lot of work, and I think it's like pulling off because I think that you know in her prior roles she's a badass in Zero Dark Thirty, and I think she's sort of taking bits bits of everything that she's done. Um. Yeah. I um. Again, I know we've poked so many holes in this film tonight. But all that aside, I, I was thoroughly entertained by this film from beginning mm -hmm. to end. I was never bored. Mm -hmm. And even if I was questioning some of the decisions being made, um, I, I was still very much like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I, I think this is a very fun movie. I love all these characters, even Thomas, even fucking Charlie Hunan. <laughs> and yeah, I do think that the, the sparse like scare scenes um, are very effective. I do wish it was practical effects instead of CGI, but it is what it is. I'm not a big fan of like novel. Sorry, not that I'm not a fan. I just don't read novelizations of horror films very much. Um, and by very much, I mean never. never. Uh, but I would love to read a novelization of this book, but like written like it was written in the 1800s with a good cover, just like that. Like I was reading it for a fucking summer reading list for school um, because I feel like it would read very well. I feel like this would read a lot better than it would than you see it. And I would fix a lot of the issues that I have with it. But I still I, big jump up in quality for me on a rewatch still, even like flaws and all. And put a little porn mm. on the side, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that deep, that deep HJ. I mean, the thing that I really love about uh, the editing is when we first, when she first takes a sip of the tea, it cuts to her like sort of startled awake in bed, and the color palette of the film just goes to like a yeah. you know green yellow sort of, and 
it's almost as if she's dreaming because she starts to roam this, you know, sort of creaky vacant house, uh, mansion. And it's similar to when she was a kid and she first saw the ghost. It was at night, she was laying in bed. So everything sort of takes on this like weird dreamlike state. And yeah, I just love looking at this movie for two mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. And it's why it's, you know, flaws and all, it just doesn't matter. It's just like a real feast. Yeah. Yeah. For me, um, I think I'm a little bit cooler than the two of you. For me, this is mostly a visual success so Mm -hmm. i i think the actors are doing really good work the narrative is a little bit i don't want to say underwhelming it's just yeah some parts of it don't really work all that well for me but just visually this is so sumptuous like the costume design the sets yeah everything about the way it's shot i think it's just such an evocative world you really really do get lost in it and the whole concept of you know the bloody grounds that just become more bloody and the house that's sinking into it it's so good so yeah i mean you watch it you're never bored because there's always something interesting to look at even if you don't love the mysteries you don't love the romance and so on but then you know you got that jessica Chastain third act to look forward to and it is fucking great like this movie goes out with a bang so yeah I really enjoyed rewatching this. There you go. Mm. All right. Well, that is Crimson Peak, everyone. And before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Greg, let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Um, I'm on Twitter for the time being. Um, as Real Brew um, on Instagram, with the same handle. Yeah, I'm trying to make 2023 the year that I actually work on projects that I've had sort of lingering. So the Love and Ooh podcast where I cover... Ubel's filmography because I have never seen a single movie of his. Um, what? Okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I'm going to say I-, I hadn't either until I-, I think it was the beginning of the pandemic when I was like, you know what? That can't be that bad. And so I, I did a-, a day a day watch of House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark and Blood Rain. And I'm not going to tell you what I thought about them until you start your podcast. <laughs> okay. No, that, 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 that's fair. I mean, I have all of his older films that are like really hard to get. I have those all yeah. um, secured. And those all seem more, I don't want to say the, like the word legit, because it's legit and you both seem, mm-hmm. I don't know, sort of at odds with each other. But I'm <laughs> excited to get to like the Rampage and yeah, the House of, House of the Dead. But Mm-hmm. I think after a while, I will highly regret it. But Ubo oh, sure. is following that podcast account on Twitter. So now I feel like I have to do it. If not, he'll just fight you. He'll box you like he <laughs> yeah, does all he of his other critics. <laughs> That's true. He, he is unabashedly proud of himself. I will, I will give him that. Mm hmm. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at horrorqueers or shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd. Keep track of all the films we have covered. Uh, Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot button issues with some of our peers. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you'd like to support us with money, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're, we're still in January, so we've got episodes on Scare Package 2, Rad Chad's Revenge, The Pale Blue Eye, Skinema Rink, and Megan, and an audio commentary on Cloverfield for its 15th anniversary. 
lot of stuff um and a very exciting february coming up too <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh joe oh joe 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 mm-hmm. what are we covering next week uh nothing glib to say about this one because this is another one that you and i have been really looking forward to revisiting it's also a very popular request we've been meaning to do this for a couple of years we just bump it because there's other things and now the time has come to pay a return trip actually we're into dark castle territory yes yeah we are so we're gonna take a look at the house of wax remake (sighs) I have loved this movie ever since I saw it twice in theaters in 2005. But like, mm-hmm. I am so happy to see the resurgence of popular people like come back. Like, oh, my God, that's actually a good movie. Like, no mm-hmm. shit. <laughs> and a mean fucking movie. It's a too. mean movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is a full two hours. Now, so long. be on the lookout for that. Ooh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but um, okay, everyone. So yes, House of Wax goodies next week. But until then, uh, we can cross out Crimson Peak. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Thank you.